The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. All right, you have your Bibles? I hope you do. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to Jonah 1. Jonah 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have some at the back. You can just stick your hand up, and I'm sure one of our ushers will get them to you. If you hold your hands out like this, uh, then, uh, then uh, like a receiver, they're pretty good. It's football season, so they'll chuck one over and land it right in that bread basket right there for you. Just kidding. I won't put Greg on the spot like that, but we do have some Bibles for you. Jonah 1. It's near the end of your Old Testament. If you get to Matthew in your Bible, just turn back probably 40, 50 pages or so, and you'll find this short book that will be the focus of our attention these, uh, these next few weeks. In the month of September here, we'll be in the book of Jonah. Jonah is in the section of your Bible called the Minor Prophets, though they speak of a major God. Uh, most of them are uh, uh, written in the form of poetry, poetic warnings, actually. It's, it's a flowery, flowery language to say, hey, obey the Lord or it's not going to go well for you. That's what the, most, uh, the, the minor prophets are. Jonah is not that, though. Unlike the rest of them, Jonah is different, for it is a narrative. It is a story about the prophet himself about his actions and about his commissioning uh, uh, from the Lord. And, you know, as I've been immersed in these uh, 48 verses, these four chapters uh, over the last several weeks, if I've been immersed in this text, I've been captured by the relentless nature, character, and activity of our God. He is relentless. See, God does nothing halfway. It's just not in him because his character is the epitome. He is the, uh, the, the, the supreme of all these characteristics. And so uh, in his character, he's this way. And in his work, he is this way. He leaves none of his work unfinished or his promises unfulfilled. And while we might be in uh, progress, even now, he has promised to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so as you just look and we'll scan and we'll look at these things in greater detail through the book of Jonah here, while we are all in progress, God shows his relentless mercy when we foolishly run. God shows his relentless rescue when we find ourselves swallowed up in our sin. He shows his relentless commitment to the mission, even when we lack the faith to get it done. He shows his relentless patience with us when we throw our own pity parties and complain about who he is and how he is at work. And despite all this, despite all this, God does not get waylaid in his plans, nor does he become like cranky in his character. He is unaffected by us, and this church is the message of Jonah. And so it's my hope for us this month that we, as we like immerse ourselves in this book, that we will, uh, our hearts and our minds will, into, will be captured, not by a big fish, but by a big God, by a relentless God. And so let's jump into chapter one. I want to read it for us. It's a short story here. You may be familiar with it. Put all out of your mind all the veggie tale things and all the other kids' uh, uh, images you have in your mind and let the word of God set the table. Let the word of God paint the picture for what's happening here for us this morning. Ready? Look at your Bible. I'm going to read it for us. Chapter one of Jonah. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, 
Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? The men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is God's word for God's people. Let me just give you the bottom line right up front about what Jonah chapter 1 is all about. There is no escape from God's relentless mercy. Write that down. Etch that into your hearts. Feel the weightiness as we get in deeper here uh, through this chapter, but note this, there is no escape from God's relentless mercy. Now, Jonah 1, as you may have noticed, as we were reading through this, has two uh, parallel themes running alongside each other in this. You have in one lane Jonah's foolish flight from the Lord, right? And in the other parallel lane, swimming right alongside it, is God's relentless mercy towards Jonah. And so look here at the text, just kind of like as bookends here. In the first uh, two verses here, you have God's commissioning of Jonah to the mission. The word of the Lord comes to him. He sends him and says, go to Nineveh on one end. And then on the other end, in verse 17, you have God's consuming of Jonah to preserve him for that same mission. God's relentless mercy towards him. And in between then of those two bookends, you have the bizarre behavior of Jonah, don't you? 
Uh, this text then, as we look at Jonah's life and as we see God's relentless mercy, should serve as two purposes then for us this morning. One, it should serve as a warning for running away and disobeying God. But also as a great comfort. Great comfort to those who are following God that know to know that God is so merciful towards his kids. So as we look at the first six verses here, under that uh, main theme, there, there's no escape from God's relentless mercy. You should know this, is that you cannot hide from His presence. Write that down. Here's what the first six verses teach us. In the light of God's mercy and not being unable to escape it, you also cannot hide from His presence. See, verse 1 here, look at the uh, verses with us. We'll go a little bit deeper into it, and we'll take it a verse at a time here. Verse 1, it's like all the background we get about Jonah. Word of God comes to him uh, in a same way, maybe just like this. God's word is coming to us this morning, and then we have his names. Jonah simply means dove. Amatai means my true one. Note that away for you who are still having kids. It's a good boy name, right? Always come in our Old Testament for great names. Amatai means my true one. And that's all we really get about Jonah. He is mentioned back in 2 Kings 14, verse 25, as a prophet during the uh, reign of the wicked king of Israel, Jeroboam II, which happened in about 70 AD to 750 BC. That helps give any context to where he was. This, uh, in this time frame, he's just mentioned here, uh, and in this time frame then about 30 years after this, in 720 B.C., is when the northern kingdom of Israel would be actually uh, captured and taken uh, into captivity by the Assyrians. And so this is happening before that. This is coming to the end of the, uh, of the divide. Uh, after Solomon, the uh, kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. The northern uh, ten tribes were referred to as Israel. The southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin referred to as Judah. And so Jonah is a prophet there during the uh, rule of the wicked king Jeroboam II. It was actually Jeroboam I that was the first king uh, hundreds of years prior to that that uh, led the divided kingdom. But... So this is 30 years before their captivity. And guess what? Guess what Nineveh is? Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians. Of the, of the nation of Assyria. Nineveh is. And so what was Jonah's assignment then from the Lord? We know what he was told to go, to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. In other words, call out repentance. You have offended the God of the universe. It is time to repent and believe in the one true and living God. So what was Jonah's assignment? To preach repentance to his enemies the ones that would come and, and one day uh, 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 de defeat this nation and subdue them and would be actually uh, the instrument of God to bring that judgment upon rebellious Israel. And so what does Jonah do in verse 3? He like jumps all over this assignment, doesn't he? He's like, sign me up, send me in, I'm ready to go, give me the hardest job. Is that what it says, church? Absolutely not. It's the exact opposite, right? He, he did the exact opposite. It says, but Jonah rose to flee Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so the intervening verses from 3 to 16 is like watching someone you love make repeated foolish decisions to ruin their life. It's like things just go from bad to worse in Jonah's life. He chooses to flee from God's presence and then just Bad decision, tragedy after tragedy happens as we just read. 
And church, note these two words in Jonah 3, but Jonah. These are some of the most tragic words in all the Bible. God sends his people. God makes himself known. But then, but Jonah, or but, insert your own name, but somebody else goes their own way, does what is right in their own eyes, or does what is evil in their own eyes. And these, but Jonah, these two words are the most tragic words in all the Bible when people choose to go their own way. Church, what are the most redemptive two words in all of Scripture. Music to our ears. But God being rich in mercy with the great love in which he loved us, he saved us. The two most redemptive words in the Bible, but God in response to our foolishness, despite our sinfulness, but God, but Christ, but the Lord intervened. But the Lord showed great mercy. But Christ came and lived the life that we were supposed to live and couldn't live. He died the death that we were supposed to die and didn't die. This church is the gospel. And I would uh, plead with you this morning, as you think of your story, let your story be filled with few, with few but Jonah's and many but God's. Many, many but God's. And so notice this, what's repeated here in the, in the but Jonah. Notice what is repeated so we don't miss the point from whom or what is Jonah fleeing? Is he, is, he, is, he fleeing the, is he simply fleeing the mission, like he's skipping work? You know, I got this assignment from the Lord. I'm supposed to go do this uh, visit. I'm supposed to go do this job. And you know what? I'm just not about it, so skipping out. Is he skipping out on the Ninevites? Is he fleeing the Ninevites? No, from whom is he fleeing, church? It's repeated multiple times. The presence of the Lord. He heads in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh would be east, and he's heading west, and he's heading out into the sea. He heads to Joppa on the coast, uh, pays his fare, and he says, Sayonara, I'm heading out to Tarshish. He hides then in the belly of a boat. He's asleep then during the storm and in the, uh, in, in all the, the, the panic and the frantic actions as the storm is coming upon them. They're throwing things out of the boat, and the people have the prayer meeting, like to pray into all their own gods. And Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Note this, church, there is nowhere you can hide from the presence of the Lord. Belly of a boat, anywhere. He has all the means of creation at his disposal to get your attention, including the sea. As I said earlier, what is this? This is a terrifying thought to those who are fleeing, isn't it? A comforting thought to those who are following the Lord. And so note this. Why is this so important? Why is this repeated? Why does the Lord want us to get this? It's because as believers, what is the very thing that we are after? What do we want? The presence of the Lord, right? This is what we want. What was the book of Exodus all about as we journeyed through that for all those months? It was about God coming to dwell among his people, his presence being there with them. What is our worship church all about? Why are we so committed to our pillars of unashamed worship and unapologetic preaching and unceasing prayer and unafraid witness? It's because when we commit ourselves to these things, God shows up. He is present to change us. What is the promise attached to the Great Commission? As he says, go make disciples. And what does he promise? And lo, I will be with you 
As believers, we want the presence of God for where God is present. Change happens. Transformation happens. We are transformed from one degree of glory to the other. Why? Because God's mercy is poured out upon us. I think Jonah knew this. I think he didn't want Nineveh to know it, apparently. He didn't want it, so he ran. He hid to get out of it. Try to get as far away as possible. I read this. Like, Lord, would you forgive us for having Jonah hearts towards those Ninevites in our life? The people that God has put on our street, the people that God has put in our workplace with us, you know, you know, you know those ones, the neighbors, you know, the, the liberals or the conservatives, right? Those, those Democrats, those Republicans, whoever they might be, those living an unbiblical alternative lifestyle, the neighbor that hurt you, the neighbor that never mows his grass, or whatever it might be, and God has called us. He has strategically placed them in our life to live on mission. Far too often we turn the other way, don't we? Can't hide from his presence. Can't run from his mission. We cannot escape the mercy of God being poured out upon his people. Lord, forgive us. We're having Jonah hearts like this, right? But see, here's the thing. We can't hide from his presence as much as Jonah is trying here. But as the text goes on, here's, here's, the, here's the second thing. We can't, we can't diminish his power. We can't diminish his power. You know, Jonah's the prophet who should be fearing God, shouldn't he? Like, he's, he's the Holy One. The word of the Lord's coming to him. He should be fearing God. And instead, who is the one or the ones that are exceedingly afraid? the sailors or the mariners that it said. And this is bizarre to me. This whole passage is. It's, it's almost ironic in how it all plays out. It's as if the story is re- being recorded for us because the irony of it is meant to teach us these profound lessons. The relentless nature of God's mercy, of this relentless commitment to his mission, and of the craziness that we will go to in order to get out of following the Lord in obedience. And so what is, what, what is at play here uh, underneath all of this teaching? It is God's providential power. It's his providential power all over creation. As we see, as he, he hurls a great wind. He has power over the winds. He has power over the sea. He has power over then even the fish within the sea. Our verses here, beginning in verse 7, he has power even over the casting of lots. It may seem like chance, right? cast some dice, we're going to draw straws, however we cast lots in our own day. Seems like chance, but make no mistake, this is the providence of God over even the turning of stones and rocks and sticks. And so just picture the scene here for a minute. You've seen the pandemonium that had broken out as the sea is raging upon them and they're chucking out all their cargo. Uh, You know, they're getting rid of likely all of their livelihood. Maybe they're merchant sailors here, and they, they, they relied upon the sale of these things in order to provide for themselves, but their life is on the line, and they're, they're tossing everything out the boat. And they've come to their wit's end. They're calling out to their gods. They've woken up Jonah, and they say, like, let's cast lots here. And so you can see them, like, all the sailors are in a circle, the boats rocking all around. And in those days, the casting of lots was, was uh, the take, they would take two rocks, One side of the rock was painted a dark color. The other side of the rock painted a light color. And they would toss it. They would say, okay, you, Aaron, is it your fault? They'd throw the rocks. If they were two light colors, no. If it was one light and one black, got to roll them again. If it came out both dark colors, yes, his fault. Okay? 
And so they do this, and they come to Jonah, and what does it say? Yeah, Jonah, your fault, your fault. And so they confront him with a litany of questions in verse 8, right? Like, uh, on whose account? What, what, what's your job, man? What do you do for work? Where do you come from? What nation are you? I guess they didn't ask these questions when they admitted him onto their boat, right? Just paid his fare and got on. But they ask him all these, they interrogate him, and his answer in verse 9 is said with almost this like nonchalant ambivalency about the reality of what he is saying. I'm a Hebrew. I am God's chosen people. I fear the Lord. Yeah, right. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. As the sea and everything is, is around. He's like, I worship the creator, the one true and living God. And he says it just kind of in ambivalency. And the men are the ones who respond appropriately. The sailors here, they, they actually fear. They're like, well, what have you done? You follow this God? We follow our whatever, our, our false gods or whatever. They're powerless. So you follow the one who controls all this stuff? They're exceedingly Fear. Again, Lord, would you forgive us for our ambivalent hearts towards you? Lord, forgive us for diminishing your power in, your, uh, in, in our minds, for not believing what you can do in the most hardest of hearts. Forgive us for that, Lord. And redemption, do you know what expands our view of God's power? Even though it's like minimized here in Jonah's eyes, as he knows what, uh, what he is doing, as he knows God and his power and his Ability, what is it that expands our belief in the power of God? What is it that expands our, uh, uh, our mind about the abilities of God? It is believing in and dwelling upon the providence of God. Not only is he powerful, but he has at his means, at his sovereign control, the ability to work all things out. And this is a theme that we see all throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation. There's a new book that John Piper wrote. Guess what it's titled? Providence. It's a huge tome. And here he simply defines providence as this, as God's purposeful sovereignty. His purposeful sovereignty, and it extent, its extent reaches down to the flight of electrons, up to the movement of galaxies, and into the heart of man. Nature is wise and just and good, and its goal is the Christ-exalting glorification of God and the gladness of the, His redeemed people, end quote. God's providence is His purposeful sovereignty to move all things in order to accomplish His will, in order to extend His mercy to His people. And so what providence is not is not just mere coincidence, it is not just merely the, uh, our, our plans working out in our favor. No, it is his purposeful sovereignty, his purposeful control over all things in the universe to get our attention, to uh, exalt himself, and to bring things to work out for our gospel good. As our mind is expanded with these things, as we begin to believe this, then the power of God is not diminished in our life, but is actually expanded in our life. And we see the mercy of God is available to all things. And so get this, God is providential. He is purposely providential over all things, including elections. We vote, we play our part in it, and I know this is raising all kinds of questions about man's responsibility and all these things. But God 
is in control over elections. He's in control over natural disasters. He's in control over global pandemics. He's in control over the minutest of details in your life, like medical diagnoses, like job changes, like so-called accidents that happen. In everything, God has a purpose. And in everything, it is God's mercy at play, even when we can't readily see it. The very fact that God is at work in our life is, an, an, a, is a, a manifestation of his mercy towards us. That he is at work here in Jonah's life as he is preserving him, as the lot has been cast, as, the, as his name is now being exalted in the midst of this trial, in the midst of, uh, of imminent drowning. God's name and his power is now being exalted in this situation. Isn't God so good to create this and to do this even in our own life? Do we find ourselves in tight spots like this? Even as we find ourselves in the midst of sin, God's name is yet exalted and his mercy is placed on display. And church, knowing this, knowing this should cause us to fear God with a worshipful awe. That he would care enough about us, that he would be at work in our life, even in the midst of sin, that we, even in our sinfulness, cannot escape God's relentless mercy. How could we be so indifferent then, like Jonah? How could, how could we be so indifferent unless we are running from the Lord? Unless we don't believe this, and then it is there where we really get ourselves into trouble, isn't it? When we're running away from the presence of the Lord, only trouble ensues. And so here's, like, we can't escape God's mercy, and here's the thing, you can't avoid His discipline. Here's what the last few verses teach. You can't avoid God's discipline. In this part, the, the ending part here gets even more tragic, doesn't it? They, they find out, it's like, okay, it's your fault. And they're like, well, what should we do here? And the sea is, is beginning to rage even more. as this like illustration of like, hey, this, this is an important answer. Right? Like how you answer this question, what should we do here? And the sea begins to rage around it. And, and what does Jonah do? He tries to drag the sailors into his sin with them by getting them to sin also. He's been confronted with his sin, with his running. They know he's running from the presence of the Lord. And they're like, what are you doing, man? He won't repent. He's too cowardly to make it right. He won't just say, okay, you're right. Turn the ship around. Take me back so I can follow the Lord. Or, hey, take me back. You're right. I repent. I am, follow I am not following the Lord. Instead, what does he say in verse 12? In essence, he's like, hey, take my life, kill me, toss me into the sea. Wow. He would stoop so low in his running from the Lord, he would not even do the deed himself, but tries to get them to do it. To put the blood of, of his death on their hands. Initially in verse 13, they're like, they, won't, they, won't, they don't want to do it. We want no part of this. We're, we, we would rather try to row hard in the midst of this storm, verse 13, and get back to dry land. But instead, no, wrong answer. This man needs to repent. God is after him, and the sea grows more, even more tempestuous. So what do they do? They ask forgiveness right away, right? They're like, Lord, forgive us. And then they hurl him in the same way that God hurled the wind upon the sea. They hurl him. I like the picture in my mind, like they, you know, picked him up by his britches and, you know, 
all got on one side and like a log and just tossed him out. And what immediately happens? Storm calms down. They fear the Lord exceedingly. Can you imagine being in the midst of that? This, the activity of the Lord. Yeah, so they, they do. They offer a sacrifice to the Lord, worshipful sacrifice. They make some vows. The very thing that Jonah should have been doing. Making a sacrifice for his sin, bowing to the Lord. I will follow you. I will do this. But instead, he doesn't. See, church, note this. When we're running from sin, we, there's no limit to the foolishness that we will find ourselves in. Even to the point of dragging other people into it. And we cringe when we think about the things that we've done in our own life like this, right? Like We kind of lift a, like a reluctant hand like, yeah, I've been in some Jonah spots like this. Especially prior to Christ. Maybe even following Christ and been given a hard mission. We cringe to think about where our life would have headed but for the mercy of God. Breathe a sigh of relief in all of this. Now, lately, our daughter, my middle daughter, six, she's been all about asking. I'm not sure where this all originated. She's been all about asking Aaron and I, and maybe even some of you, uh, about some sneaky stories from your childhood. She wants to know about uh, sinfulness from our childhood. It's also brought out some of her own confessions and things, which has been good. But she's been asking, you know, different things. And so I've told her and tried to highlight the mercy of God and the foolishness of sinfulness. And one of her favorite stories from my childhood, actually, was when I was 15, uh, before I had my driver's license. And even though I, I knew how to drive, I'd been driving for a long time. I was left home alone and wanted to go to my friend's house. And it was just a few blocks away. could have easily walked there, but parents aren't home. I know how to drive. Van's in the garage. I want to take the van. You're a teenager. This is a story of what not to do, okay? Well, I proceeded to take the van, drive a few blocks to my friend's house, and stayed there for several hours. And in those several hours that I was there, note this, this is in Wisconsin as well, it snowed out a couple inches, not a big blizzard or anything. And so made my way back home later that night and drove down my driveway, put the van in the garage, turned around and looked what followed me right up the driveway in the snow the tracks of the car in the snow. And I knew I was caught red-handed. So what does any quick-thinking teenager do? I get the shovel down and I shovel the whole driveway. <laughs> shovel the whole driveway from garage to, to the street and uh, go to bed with a sneaky, guilty conscience. Wake up the next morning. Parents are there. They're so grateful. Blair, you are so responsible. Thank you for being considerate for... for Shovel in the driveway, and it took me 10 years for the truth to come out and tell my parents. Because <laughs> see, here's the time. I was saved in that whole point. I'd been saved a couple years before, before that when I was 12. But in that season, uh, I, was, I, I was enticed by the world, was running from the Lord. It wasn't until about a year after that, after I'd turned 16, that the Lord appointed a sickness to take me to the doctor and a speeding ticket and traffic violations and a, 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 a song on the radio to get my attention. 
what he had to do was swallow me up after those tickets and after those things was swallow me up with, uh, with three months of grounding and place me in the belly of my bedroom for those three months and in my house because I could not avoid God's discipline. And I could not escape his mercy. He had uh, an appointed plan for my life and he was unrelenting in his pursuit of despite my sinfulness, despite my foolishness, despite my rebellion. And so I needed his discipline. Note this from Hebrews 12. Look at it on the screen here. It says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is out of love that the Lord disciplines us out of his great mercy to rescue us from ourselves, from our sinfulness, from going our own way. Even despite the great foolishness of Jonah and the lengths that he would go to. And while there's pain in that in our own life, there's also pain as we think about the people that we love. Sometimes that's even more painful, isn't it? Kids, siblings, parents, friends, beloved people. It's painful to watch them bent on foolishness and to fall headlong into it. Especially when it's family, isn't it? And so where's the comfort in the pain? Comfort in the pain is the truth that they can't avoid uh, God's discipline. The, The comfort is that they cannot escape God's relentless mercy. And so then what becomes the focus of our prayers for people in these situations? God, in your mercy, appoint a big fish to swallow them up. Whatever it might be, whatever he would use, whatever is in his providential power. See, even God's discipline is his expression of his relentless mercy to rescue those who are running from him. And so his discipline is out of his mercy in the same way that parents discipline their kids, out of great love and mercy to curb the foolishness that is bound up in the heart of a child. And it's like all along the way in our life, Every time we are low in sin, it's like we, God puts up one of these you know, signs in our life, like the signs we see at these low water crossings. Turn around, don't drown. You seen these signs before? At those low water crossings around town? Ever been tempted to drive through it? In time of a flood, you're like, man, it's a few inches. I can get through there in my Toyota Camry. No, heed the sign. Turn around, don't drown. As you are in your sin and God is, is, is bringing uh, his mercy to bear upon you, as he is using all manner of things in his providential power, he is essentially saying, turn around, don't drown. It might be through the love and the confrontation of a friend. It might be through the scripture, if you're even in it. It could be through a radio or through a podcast, all God's Uh, All things are in God's hands to say this message. Turn around, don't drown. Behold the mercy of God towards us in all of these things, right, church? Mercy of God towards us. Let us be warned by Jonah's example of what happens when we run. Turn around, don't drown. 
But let us also be warmed by God's relentless mercy towards us who are his beloved. Who are his beloved? I don't know, a passage like this brings up all kinds of things. Maybe you find yourself in this point in your life, maybe even to the thought of of a kid or a friend, somebody that you love is walking like Jonah. And so I think the appropriate way to end uh, our message now is to just have a time of prayer, of just coming before the Lord, of doing even what Jonah should have done in this passage and uh, praying prayers of repentance for his own sake, of praying, God, would you, here, would you appoint a big Fish. So can we pray to that end now, church? Go ahead and bow your...